This is Climate One. The 27th Annual International Climate Conference is just weeks away. At the end of the day, the question is not only are we doing enough, we clearly aren't, but are we making progress? And I believe we clearly are. We talk with the COP27 Youth Envoy about what she hopes to accomplish. To be the link and to bring in the perspectives, the solutions, and the calls to action of youth both in Egypt, Africa, and globally, and feed it directly into the work of the presidency. And this time, President Biden goes to the Conference of Parties, or COP, with a huge U.S. climate bill on the books. It's not a pledge. It's not a promise. It's not a regulation that might be flipped on its end. It's a congressional agreement that gives it substantial standing. How many climate summits does it take to rein in climate disruption? I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. COP27 will be held in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. This year's conference is taking place at a time when countries across the world have been experiencing raging wildfires, unprecedented heat waves, and catastrophic floods and hurricanes. The urgent need for action has never been more clear. And yet, here we are holding annual talks for the 27th time. Today, we'll be taking a hard look at the upcoming summit and whether past promises are finally being put into action. The Paris Agreement came out of COP21. That deal requires all signatory countries, pretty much every nation on Earth, to declare their own nationally determined contributions, or NDCs. Basically, each country's voluntary plan for getting off fossil fuels. The plans are supposed to show that their climate targets are in line with the international goal of limiting global warming to under 2 degrees Celsius, and ideally under 1.5 degrees. But as recent reports have shown, most countries are far from actually delivering on their promises. And again, they're voluntary. As we look forward to this year's summit, we can already see certain issues rising to the fore. The central problem is that everything that needs to be done costs a lot of money. That includes transitioning to clean energy, to building resilience and adapting to the temperature rises that centuries of emissions have already baked into the system. It could cost as much as $5 trillion a year, by some estimates. So who's going to pay for that? That's the question. The money questions already swirling around COP27 come in two broad categories, finance and loss and damage. In the context of these international negotiations, finance refers to money for everything the world needs to do to mitigate, that is, reduce emissions and to adapt to future climate disruption. Loss and damage, on the other hand, refers to money theoretically owed by the countries that cause the problem to the countries that are already suffering. That's right. Ariana, if your factory spilled toxic waste on my farmland, I'd be really upset, and it would be only fair that you should have to pay for the loss and damage I suffer. That's the argument here. The world's 20 biggest economies are responsible for 80% of all climate-disrupting emissions. But that doesn't mean they're willing to accept that responsibility, especially if it means they have to pay. So these are the central issues facing the nations of the world as they gear up for COP27. At last year's climate summit in Glasgow, countries that make up about two-thirds of the global economy committed to reducing emissions enough to try and limit global heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The Biden administration and U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate John Kerry have since been focused on getting the other third on board. Jonathan Pershing recently served in the White House as John Kerry's deputy. I asked him what progress has been made in getting the other third of the global economy, China, Russia, India, Indonesia, to raise their ambition. I think there's a couple of different things to unpack here. The first one is that uh, these are countries that are significant contributors to the total. China by itself is the better part of 30% of world's emissions. So if you think about where they are, you need them to move quickly if you want to solve the problem. The second is that these are not countries that are not acting at least not all of them. It's not as if China hasn't taken any steps. China is the world's largest producer and developer of renewable power. China is the world's largest producer and developer and purchaser of electric vehicles. And in fact, if you add up the electric vehicles in China, they are the equivalent of the electric vehicles in the rest of the world combined. Having said that, China is also developing its coal China's moving forward on that partly for near-term demand, partly to meet uh, reliability questions that it's got. And unless it shifts away from that, you won't be able to solve this global problem. So you've got this real tension. There are others who are much, much more recalcitrant. 
countries that have perhaps taken on a public commitment but have not yet begun to take domestic action. I'd put a country like Brazil in that box, frankly, a country which has indicated its intent to get to zero carbon emissions and yet continues with a radical and rapid rate of deforestation. Now, that might change in the context of the election that's happening, but it might not. And there's an interesting question about whether that implementation is appropriate. At the moment, from a climate perspective, it isn't. And there's other countries. India was one of the last ones to come on board for Paris. What are they doing? So I think India is fascinating. India has put itself with a 10-year lag behind China. And China put itself with a 10-year lag behind the U.S. So that means that the U.S. is committed to getting to zero by 2050. China is committed to getting to zero by 2060. And India said, we'll get there by 2070. Now, if India actually gets there by 2070, it's probably too late. And that's assuming they do get there. But let's separate now, and this is not just the case for India, but for others. What is their commitment in a public setting like the climate negotiations? And what kind of actions are they taking domestically? And what kind of trajectory are they on? India is actually ahead of itself in some parts of their domestic work. They're doing more work on renewables. They've committed, for example, for this massive, massive increase in renewable energy domestically. If they meet that number, they probably exceed by at least a decade their 2070 target. So do you think about the fact that target is wrong? Or do you think about the fact that the emissions commitments at home and the policy development is not yet robust enough, but is right? That disconnect shows up in other places as well. Countries are prepared to do more often than they're prepared to commit to in an international arena. When President Obama went to Paris, he had two policies in hand, two pillars, basically. He had the CAFE standards and the Clean Power Plan that focused on coal-fired electricity. President Biden goes to Egypt with several big laws on the books, the Inflation Reduction Act, the landmark climate and budget legislation combined with the CHIPS Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law. How has that changed the geopolitical landscape? I think we're just beginning to see the changes. But let me back up one step, because I think one of the things that's fascinating is to think about the implications of what Obama went with and what's happened since then. So as you note, he had that CAFE standard and he had that clean power plan. It turns out that America, notwithstanding the challenges, has actually exceeded the targets set, particularly in the clean power plan. So if I'm looking at the United States from a perspective of another country, and I say, well, you're erratic. You come with a regulation and the next administration overturns it. That's certainly true. But you're also consistent. You come with a regulation and five, 10 years later, you've actually exceeded the commitments that you made in it. So from that perspective, maybe not quite so uneven. Now, compare that with what Biden's got. And it's a big advantage for Biden, huge advantage. He's not coming with a regulatory program. He's coming with a congressional mandate, and in that congressional mandate is money, and an extraordinary amount of money to implement a U.S. provision, a U.S. program to really reduce emissions. Perhaps helpful to briefly unpack the three pieces. The CHIPS Act, which is called Chips and Science Act, essentially has a big piece on research and development, runs into programs for basic science. One of the interesting elements of the climate conversation is that a lot of experts believe that we're still missing some of the technologies that we'll need to have to implement the agenda at a price we can easily afford. It doesn't mean the technologies don't exist at all. It means they're still a bit too expensive. And so a technology focus that drives that price down feels like it's going to be a critical component of the end use. All right, that's chips. The second is infrastructure. Major, major commitments. Now, it might end up going into pretty conventional things like expanding the highway across the street, but it could also go, and it's explicitly designed to open the door to go to vehicle recharging infrastructure for electric cars, to extending grid connections for large-scale utilities that means it's possible to move electric power from renewables into cities and towns where the power is needed basic infrastructure provisions. And there are literally hundreds of billions of dollars for that infrastructure. 
Now add the third piece, which is this Inflation Reduction Act. And that has come with the numbers that are often cited, just under $400 billion for climate change programs in virtually every sector. So it can build on the new R&D. It can build on the infrastructure that's coming, and it can now be incentives for companies and for individuals to purchase the things and make the things that are required. I can now get resources for my electric car, and I've got a charging infrastructure that's going to be available. I can get subsidies and support for renewable energy, and I've got a grid that'll make that work. I can get policy support and financial support if I'm a city or a state designing new programs that might help low-income communities access some of those capacities. And now on the other two bills, there's infrastructure support for it. I can do school buses and there's support for it. So it's an enormously diverse and comprehensive set of policies. I look at that now from an international perspective, and I say the U.S. is no longer just promising something. The U.S. has put money on the table to deliver it, and that enables someone like John Kerry as our envoy or President Biden when he goes out at the G20 to have a very, very different point of departure. It's not a pledge. It's not a promise. It's not a regulation that might be flipped on its end. It's a congressional agreement that gives it substantial standing. Right. And kind of protects it against a change in 2024. So it sounds like Biden's in a stronger position for reasons you described. Have any countries raised their ambition since the U.S. passed the IRA? Well, it's only been a couple of weeks. Um, so we should be clear that it takes countries a little while to think about things. I, I think there are a few things that have happened. I would have chosen less the IRA and more Glasgow. Because Glasgow, which is last November, ended up setting the stage for really an increased level of ambition. We've seen a few countries act, unsurprisingly in some cases. Probably most notable is Australia, which had an election. And the election turned the politics uh, toward a much more ambitious climate agenda. In fact, that's part of the grounds for the change in the government there was a vision that they wanted to do more on climate. They've now announced a new target, which didn't exist in the old government and therefore wasn't being presented in Glasgow. Very few others have moved at a national level, but companies are beginning to move. Investors are beginning to move. We're seeing a change in the banking sector as it looks to profitability. That's beginning to change. That quick shift and quick turnover is where things would start. I think we'll see in Egypt at this next international negotiation whether other countries might be prepared to add to the formal level of ambition in their public statements. So COP27 coming up in Egypt is called the Implementation Summit. Countries have pledged to reduce their emissions and some have produced plans for doing so. Uh, but despite all pledges, emissions keep rising, rebounding from the COVID dip and climate-induced disasters keep increasing. So what's it going to take to get countries to make good on their pledges and promises? So I think there, again here, more nuance is helpful. At the end of the day, the question is not only are we doing enough, we clearly aren't, but are we making progress? And I believe we clearly are. It's extremely difficult to look at what the world would have been like had we not done what we've currently done. But that's an important thing to think about. We spent 25, 30 years now, and I believe the trajectory has come down virtually every year. If you look at the scientific assessment of where we were in the early 1990s, we were looking at temperature increases on the order of five or more degrees. If you look at where we are now out of Glasgow less than a year ago, but with the work that was done in that 25 or 30 year period, we think that temperatures now will rise at most only about three degrees. Now, three is too much. It's an extraordinary level. Horrible, horrible. That's a horrible world. Today. No one wants to, it's a horrible no world. No one wants to live but in we, that world. Yeah. But we've brought it down by 60%. So we should be clear that it's not that we have failed. We're not succeeding fast enough. We have more to do, but we should not look at the policies and the initiatives and talk about failure. We should look at rate and talk about what more is still to be done as opposed to castigating ourselves for falling apart. Having said that, there are a couple of really, really big things, both on the positive side and on the challenges side, to look at. On the positive side, we are seeing the prices of some of the critical technologies now cheaper than the conventional ones. In particular, it speaks to renewable energy. 
There was a very interesting study which suggests that solar power, even in places like China, now may be cheaper than coal. That changes the dynamics. It is already the case in the U.S. that solar and wind make up the vast majority of every single new power plant installed in the United States. And it's not only because there are some regulatory changes. No, no, no. It's because the prices come down and it's cheaper. So I think those kinds of shifts are beginning to really permeate. And the rate of change is extraordinarily fast. Usually it takes a generation, 30 to 50 years for a new technology to move. We're seeing this accelerated into 10 or 20 year horizons. So very much faster. To get to net zero emissions by 2050, the UN estimates the world needs to spend between four and five trillion dollars per year on clean energy. Recent levels have been below two trillion. So that's a doubling of the rate of investment. Massive numbers. What needs to be done to mobilize that amount of capital and where will it come from? So I think you also have to think not just about the amount is for renewables, but how much is the world investing in energy across the board? Actually, it's the better part of the same number. It turns out that the increment is not $4 trillion. You have to change the current investment into a new investment. So we need less than a trillion of new investment. We just need to shift the existing investment into a friendlier, greener scenario. And we are seeing that. One of the more interesting developments in my mind over the course of the last year in the Biden administration has been the work that Janet Yellen and others have done in trying to capture an understanding of risk. Because when I look at risk, and I'm a company, and I look at the risk for the physical changes in climate and for the policy, all of a sudden I recalibrate where my investment is going. So if I'm a company looking at making an investment in a fossil intensive sector, I'm rethinking that. That's not a good place to go. So I'm pushing my investment now into a greener alternative, into a lower carbon future. And those are becoming increasingly binding. We're seeing binding commitments in the part of Europe. We're seeing an increasingly binding frame in Chinese financial markets. And we're seeing structures in the US, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, to contemplate rulemaking in the United States. Those are shifts that will lead to exactly this change in where those trillions are going from what used to be conventional fossil technologies into these new low carbon alternatives. Jonathan Pershing will be back with us later in the show. You're listening to a Climate One conversation previewing the COP27 summit in Egypt next month. Coming up, an Egyptian doctor says the world needs to approach climate like it did the COVID pandemic. We need the same seriousness. We need the same political will. And we can only do that when there is a health emergency. And climate change is no different. That's up next when Climate One continues. Youth climate activists are some of the loudest voices at the COP, demanding urgent action to save their own future. But as Rabia Jaffrey reports, engaging with climate takes different forms in different parts of the world. For a young climate activist in the U.S., this is what a typical Friday may sound like. But for Lina Yassin, a young climate activist from Sudan, Fridays sound quite different. Lina is 24 and first got involved in climate work more than 10 years ago when floods hit Khartoum. Lina is also easily one of the most influential youth from the Arabic-speaking world who's involved in climate action today. But at the end of the week, Lina will not be found at a Fridays for Future demonstration. Friday is a day where I used to go to my grandma's house uh, with my parents and where we would spend the whole day at the grandma's house and the rest of the family would come and we would connect as a family. It's also a day off, so no one had to go to school, no one had to go to work, and it was meant to be a holy day where people pray the Friday prayer and then just go to their families and reconnect. So for Lena, regular Friday protests just do not make sense in her part of the world. I think the Friday for Future is um, a great movement and it has managed to create global attention towards the climate change issue. It created a global momentum and it really did make a difference on an international level. I don't think 
that movement specifically can work in this part of the region because it doesn't fit with our cultures and it's honestly tone deaf. It is not just that these protests occur on the wrong day of the week. Most Arab countries are quasi-state systems and semi-authoritarian governments where protests, even peaceful ones, are prohibited by law. Lina personally experienced the risks of protesting in the Arab world when she was involved in the Sudanese revolution in 2019. I've seen multiple times um, people being shot and I've been tear-gassed and just going out every day knowing that there's a possibility that you might not make it out alive, there's a possibility that you may be shot, or there's a possibility that you may be arrested uh, and tortured, or even more horrible things um, that you can't even speak of. Demonstrations are not, it's it's not always peaceful. Actually, it's never peaceful in, in many Arab countries due to the political context and the fact that governments do not allow this. It's a red line that people cannot cross. And therefore, no one or the majority of people will not be willing to risk their lives, risk their futures, or risk their children's future by allowing them to go out and protest. But Arab youth's involvement in climate action matters. Young people currently account for nearly half of the population in the Middle East and North Africa region. They have historically been agents of change and have the potential to push for policy reforms and necessary climate action. And this may be why Lena feels so strongly about putting her own energy where it might be most effective. When I wanted to do climate activism, I started writing because for me, writing was the way to get to my community. And it was the way for me to get my message out there and do something. But in a country with a stifled press, journalism is no less risky than a public demonstration. Before the revolution in Sudan, Whenever I had to write an article where I had to criticize the government or criticize any of their actions, my editors would either cut it out or ask me to leave my name out of the, uh, of the article for my own safety. But what I believe in is that the journalists understand their local context, they understand the challenges, and they, underst- they also know ways around it. One such journalist is Ahmad al-Sabah. Hi, it has been uh, so long. How are you? As a young journalist, Ahmad had the opportunity to cover the 2018 UN Biodiversity Conference, which also took place in Egypt. He was hopeful that this opportunity would allow him the chance to establish himself and to bring issues on climate change and nature to the front page of local newspapers. I have been interested in climate change uh, since uh, 2018 because it's a humanitarian uh, issue and because climate change uh, poses a severe uh, threat to societies and the climate change does not have entry visas or passports uh, and does not recognize its borders and affects uh, the large and the small, the rich and the poor. At first, Ahmed was one of the five or so Arab journalists attending the 2018 conference, but by the end, He was the only regular one. Editors just were not really keen on publishing on these issues. I challenged myself and left working for newsrooms that didn't want to publish on climate. Ahmed started reporting as a freelancer on climate for whoever would publish. He also took on a lot of climate reporting training opportunities whenever he could. And then, just months later, he launched climateinarabic.com. I wanted to support my other young journalist friends. I want to help them write on climate action. I also want to help add more knowledge on climate in Arabic in the world. We have been able to work on important reports in Arabic because of the support of many grants. Today, climateinarabic.com is one of the most exhaustive sources for climate change news and information in Arabic. It has been read by over a million Arabs and is doing what many young Arab climate activists consider the absolute priority, bringing some much-needed media coverage and attention to climate change in a region that does not fully grasp the urgency of the issue. And all of this stemmed in part from the opportunity to attend a UN conference and interact with people involved in climate action from around the world. In spite of the challenges, 
Emmett and Lena are hopeful that the upcoming climate conferences will bring in opportunities and access to Arab youth who are interested in climate action, but in a way that fits their cultures and communities. For Climate One, I'm Rabia Jafri. Now let's hear from another young person, this time on the inside track of the Conference of Parties. Omnia El Omrani is a medical doctor in Egypt and youth envoy for the COP27 president. She talked with Climate One's Ariana Brocious. Dr. El Omrani says she became a climate activist because she feels an ethical obligation to respond to the biggest global health emergency of the 21st century. When we think about climate change and what leads to climate change, for example, global carbon emissions that lead to air pollution, which leads to the death of 7 million people every year. And then when we look at food and water insecurities that has been accelerating uh, in, in becoming more acute as right now in 2020 alone, there was an additional 68 million people who had uh, acute uh, food insecurity because of climate change, also because of COVID and conflict. And then this leads to malnutrition for children. It leads to the stunting of their growth and it impacts their development. And then when you start to think about the extreme weather events that we are seeing, whether it's the flooding in Pakistan, for example, the hurricanes and all the different extreme weather events, which leads to people losing their lives, getting injured, losing their homes, losing their jobs, which means that they also lose access to healthcare services. And then in Africa specifically, we also see an increase in infectious diseases because now the temperature is increasing, the vectors are increasing in their capacity and in their livelihood, and they're transmitting more diseases. But what I have seen personally now being a doctor in Cairo, in one of the biggest public hospitals that we have, I work with patients every day, especially in the summer, that suffer from acute heat stress, exacerbations of asthma because of air pollution. But also, and most importantly, as a climate activist, I see many young people like myself suffering from anxiety because of their worry about the future, suffering from PTSD because being exposed to such extreme weather events and also depression because of the worry about the future and being, you know, the most impacted with the least um, decision-making influence in climate policy. And we'll get into the climate anxiety in just a minute here because I want to ask a, a little more about that. Taking all of what you just said, how does viewing the climate crisis as a health crisis inform what the response should be? As you know, there is the IPCC report, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that is released every year. And this report is is, is the scientific uh, evidence that we use in our negotiations, especially when countries align during COP. And for the first time this year, they referred to climate change as a threat to human uh, well-being and human health. And it was said that it was a code red for humanity. And this is what we learned from COVID, for example. When the COVID-19 crisis hit, countries acted with urgency. They put on lockdown and they did a lot of measures in no time. And this is what we need for the climate crisis. We need the same seriousness. We need the same political will. And we can only do that when there is a health emergency. And climate change is no different, especially that climate change is also a justice issue, which disproportionately impacts the health of the least developed, the less developing countries who are the least contributors, but also it impacts women more than men. More women are exposed to indoor air pollution than men. And most importantly, Importantly, when we think about intergenerational justice, because children and adolescents are also affected by climate change health impacts in a disproportionate way, similar to also the elderly population, especially when it comes to acute heat stress. Yeah. So here in the U.S., when a group of doctors tried to frame gun control as a public health issue, they were basically told to stay in their lane. So I'm curious, what's been the response in Egypt to framing climate as a health issue? So the first challenge when it comes to addressing climate change in a health frame is actually from the health community because we need to transform the way climate change is seen and bring it closer to the medical community. Once they understand how our health as humans is linked to the health of the environment, it is what sustains us. And health is not about treating disease, it's about prevention and it's about the determinants of health, social, environmental, and economic determinants. And right now, 
it is an obligation ethically, not just to treat my patients, but to promote and protect the health of our communities. As doctors and as the health community, we are the trusted voice and the trusted messengers. And we need to be the advocates for the biggest health threat of our century. In addition, it's not just about the health impacts of climate change. It's also about the health co-benefits to climate action. When we promote sustainable solutions or behaviors, like for example, if I choose today not to take my car, I'm going to use public transport, I'm going to walk or I'm going to cycle. Not only is this good for the environment because I'm reducing my carbon footprint, it's also good for my health. My physical health is better, My the risk of non-communicable diseases decreases, and then and my mental health is also better because I choose to do physical exercise. And the same goes, for example, investing in renewable or clean energy. This means cleaner air, less respiratory diseases, better physical and mental health. So how have you personally been affected by climate disruption? It started uh, when I was doing actually an internship uh, in Miami. I was doing uh, emergency medicine. And it was my first time ever to go to the U.S. And I was on my own. And during the second weekend of my training, there was Hurricane Irma. And it was the first time for me to be exposed to 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 an extreme weather event. And I had to evacuate my home. And then I went to the hospital and I started to see the impacts. We did not have mortalities. We had a lot of injuries coming into the hospital. But what I also saw that many people had their either their houses were lost or were destroyed or they lost their jobs because also their workplaces were destroyed by the hurricane. And this impacted their access to the basic services that they need, which also affects their health. And this was a turning point for me because during that year, I went to the climate change conference in Poland because I was really interested to learn how I can contribute and tackle this issue. I think it's interesting that the example you cite of experiencing climate disruption was in Miami, in the U.S. here, rather than in Egypt, which is, I think for listeners, you know, it just drives home the point that we're seeing this everywhere. It's obviously not limited to any particular part of the world, though, as you've said, some parts of the world are suffering more right now because of lack of resources and other issues that are going to be brought up at COP. As you mentioned, young people all over the world are increasingly suffering from climate anxiety and other climate-induced mental health issues. So as a doctor in Egypt, what are you seeing and is this being discussed and addressed by the medical community there? So I remember when I started working on climate change, the the very obvious link that we all address is always related to, you know, air pollution or food and water insecurity. And it was very challenging to talk about mental health because there was not enough um, scientific evidence or research done to explore how climate change affects mental health. And then in Egypt specifically, Young people learn about climate change. They learn about its impacts through how interconnected we are with social media and how we talk to one another. But then it's very uh, uncommon to see climate solutions being discussed and what they can do on an individual level, what they can do with their community, with their friends, with their families. And that is why climate education is so important to address eco-anxiety because A, you empower children and adolescents and young people to understand what is climate change and the role in this crisis and then what they can do together to address the climate change um, and this really helps them cope um, and now because COP is happening in Egypt which is an amazing momentum for every host country where there are so many grassroots initiatives being led, especially by the health civil society organizations, youth-led organizations. Right now, we are organizing the Conference of Youth, which is going to happen right before COP. We, are, we have organized already six uh, local conferences over six cities in Egypt that look at climate change across all disciplines. And then we're going to have the Conference of Youth, which is COI, right before COP in Sharm el-Sheikh, in collaboration with the youth constituency, Yongo. And this really brought in a lot of interest. And personally, my university um, has reached out to me to work together to integrate climate change in the curricula of uh, doctors and healthcare professionals. And we have already started developing the course. And we had another opportunity to integrate this course across all African universities. Mm. So you're talking about there being lead up events to COP27 
how much space is going to be given, do you think, to youth and other members of civil society during the conference, in the lead up, in the weeks leading up, and maybe after in Egypt itself for climate concerns to be addressed? This year, one of the key priorities that we had as the presidency is to bring in a transformational shift when it comes to the engagement of A, civil society organizations, B, youth-led organizations, because we believe that it's not only about uh, their presence or their participation, it's about their meaningful engagement and the delivery of their inputs into the negotiation process. And that is why, for example, I myself, it's the first time ever the presidency creates a position for a young civil society representative to be part of the team as the first ever envoy on youth to be the link and to bring in the perspectives, the solutions and the calls to action of youth, both in Egypt, Africa and globally, and feed it directly into the work of the presidency. Because normally during each COP, there is the conference of the youth and then there is a statement being developed and then the statement goes to the presidency. And that is the you know, the only way where young people engage with the presidency. But this year in Egypt, we wanted to bring in a new and a, and a consistent and a meaningful shift in how youth are, perspectives are integrated for future COPs to have future envoys. And this is what we want to promote, the concept of intergenerational dialogues, where it's not young people speaking to one another and policymakers speaking to each other. To each other. It's a conversation that goes back and forth on adaptation, mitigation, and so on. We have also collaborated with civil society in Egypt, and our Ministry of Youth has launched a caravan that is going right now to 26 cities all over Egypt. In each city, the caravan works with all the different UN agencies in Egypt and young people, and together we build the capacity, we do a lot of capacity building initiatives, activities, uh, creative thinking, arts, performances to really build climate awareness and understanding and mobilize uh, the climate um, advocacy with the civil society, government and the communities, including youth uh, leaders uh, all over the 26 cities in Egypt. Mm. That's a lot. How important is it that this year's summit is being held on the African continent? So it's the first time in six years that COP is in Africa. COP26 had an incredible um, achievement when it came to the goals of mitigation. But it was not the same for adaptation, for example. And this is what we want to bring in, is to have uh, commitments and implementation mechanisms for the goal of adaptation uh, and climate resilience as well as loss and damage because in Africa um, also the continent with the most youthful population where we have over 400 million young people but we also have um, one of the greatest you know vulnerabilities to the impacts of climate change and we need to have uh, and to mobilize climate finance, not just for mitigation, but also for adaptation. Because until now, only 2% of climate finance from the private sector is allocated for adaptation. So in your role as a youth ambassador, how do you plan to help put finance and loss and damage at the center of the COP27 agenda this year? So what we're doing first is to build the capacity of already the young delegates who are going to COP, but also youth in Africa especially, so that they can, if they're not going to COP, they will be able to influence the position of their countries who will be there. And then during Africa Climate Week, I did a consultation with the African youth. We had around 100 young leaders and we started discussing how can we have a meaningful role in driving our priorities, which also includes increasing investment and increasing commitments and implementation mechanisms for loss and damage, for adaptation and the issues that impact our continent most. And then what I'm planning to do with the presidency team is to utilize all these inputs and feed them into the global youth statement, which will be presented at the Conference of Youth and then presented to the presidency, which is going to be the key advocacy tool that the young delegates who will be there at COP will use with their heads of delegations, with the different organizations, parties, non-state actors to drive 
the agenda towards adaptation, towards increasing climate finance and loss and damage. You've participated in past COPs and Greta Thunberg has famously described them as blah, blah, blah. What do you think of that assessment by her that these annual summits are basically just talk and not enough action? I understand how negotiations and the climate policymaking space is very slow and you have to be very patient, persistent. But I believe that as young climate activists and advocates, we have to be part of this agenda and this conversation and these conferences because what countries agree on at that conference, they implement when they go back. And even if they do not implement, we as young advocates, we can hold them accountable, we can ask them, and we can work with them to implement their own commitments. Being at these conferences, you will not see instant change, but you need to be part of the policy change and be and contribute to you know, seeking A, the evaluation of the progress, B, the implementation of the commitments. And it's also, it's very important to acknowledge that it's not just about COP. It's about what happens before COP, where are the decision-making, where all the consultations that countries do on a local level then translate into their position at COP. You're 27 years old. This is COP27 this year. These UN Conference of Parties on Climate have been going on for your whole life. How do you feel about that? For me personally, I always love, you know, I, I recognize that there are many challenges that we face. Um, but for every challenge, there is a solution. And for every solution, we need to be patient to see the impact that we do, especially in the climate space. I understand how, you know, the political in action and how slow policies are, especially in the climate space, are moving is also, you know, challenging, especially that I work as a doctor and I see the health impacts and I understand how it's such an emergency to address. But then with, with the COVID-19 pandemic, I saw, I felt that there is hope uh, because I saw political will that the climate crisis can have. And now the narrative is shifting and I'm very inspired to see that one of the, the reasons why the climate movement was completely changed and amplified was because of grassroots youth efforts. Climate space is an example of how youth can be meaningfully engaged in the policymaking process, but also you know, leading their communities. And this is so important for me. And this is why I love advocating for climate change, because I see that I worked on in different areas my whole life. But climate change for me is the biggest challenge of our time, but also an opportunity for a healthier world for me, for my children and grandchildren. And it's it's an obligation really to give them the world that they deserve and to really promote and protect their health so that they can live in prosperity with a future that they deserve. Omnia Elamrani is a medical doctor and the official COP27 President Youth Envoy. Thank you so much for joining us on Climate One today. Thank you for having me. Coming up, more discussions about the political complexities of getting rich countries to transfer climate money to poorer ones. And it's not as if by saying we wish it were different that it becomes different. It doesn't mean that we excuse it. It means that we have to recognize the space in which we operate. And so what I've often tried to do is to find the practical places that you can make progress. That's up next when Climate One continues. At this year's Climate Summit, the issue of who should pay for loss and damage caused by climate disruption is expected to be a central focus. Just 20 countries are responsible for 80% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. By and large, these wealthy large emitters are better positioned to weather the impacts of climate disruption than the poor countries who haven't contributed to the problem. In my conversation with former Deputy Special Envoy for Climate, Jonathan Pershing, I asked him how he views this larger question of what is owed to nations facing the brunt of climate impacts. I think it's useful to think about a spectrum 
Uh, John Holdren, who used to be President Obama's science advisor, I think really put it beautifully. He said there are a series of ways to look at climate. You can mitigate, and that's what you do if you're trying to reduce emissions. You can adapt. That's what you can do to successfully manage the increase in both temperature and associated climate risks, or you can suffer. Suffering is what happens to the stuff you can't mitigate and to which you cannot adapt. I would put Pakistan into the suffering category. I would put Florida right now into the suffering category. What do you do? Now, there's two timeframes. There's the timeframe of the immediate catastrophe. Ian, as a hurricane, is a perfect example. Immediate recovery is clear. And the U.S. and other countries in Pakistan and these examples of mega droughts and deep crises actually come to the aid in the immediate aftermath of a crisis. The problem comes longer term. In three months, how much resource will be available? If we look back at Hurricane Katrina, how much is available today as that region is still recovering from a storm that's the better part of a decade ago? And we have resources. We're a wealthy nation. What does it do to a country in the Caribbean after the third storm in 15 years comes through and every five years it's wiped out? What does it do when 30 million people are displaced in Pakistan and they'll still be displaced in enormous numbers five years from now. That's where this thing comes in. But now you have a problem because most countries that have resources don't think to make scaled transfer of resources from their own coffers to those of someone else. Our development assistance is relatively small in the context of these damages. All development assistance is measured in numbers that are around 100 to $200 billion a year, the Pakistan example, one country is between 30 and $50 billion just for this one event. There isn't a resource scaled appropriately. So we'll have to find new ways to think about managing these crises. I don't think that the meetings in Egypt or the conversations so far have moved into these practical solutions. I don't know even what they all are. But the problem now is it's very much in the rhetoric and the kind of advanced space of we need help, we need money, and not in the space of here's how we can think about this creatively to find long-term workable solutions. Yeah, it's a really tough thing. Politicians are not usually um, <laughs> inclined to send money to people who can't vote for them. John Kerry got a little testy on this subject of loss and damage at a recent New York Times event when an audience member challenged him to, quote, step up and actually put money into loss and damage, end quote. You worked for John Kerry. Let's little hear a little bit of his response and get your reaction on the other side. And you can't just set up a facility in six weeks. Let's be serious about this. We got to talk about how we're going to do it. How do you measure it? How do you allocate? What do you allocate? Where's the money coming from? You think this Republican Congress, where we couldn't get one vote for this legislation, is going to step up and do loss and damage? Good luck. So I'm, I'm in the zone of reality. If we don't lower our emissions, we're croaked, absolutely croaked. And if we don't adapt starting now, the things that we can adapt to, a whole bunch of people are going to be hurt. 15 million people die every year right now because of the air quality that we have today. Five million people are dying every year because of extreme heat. That's going to get worse. So I want to mitigate. And there's plenty of time to be arguing, pointing fingers and doing whatever. But the money we need right now needs to go to adaptation. It needs to go to building resilience. It needs to go to the technology that's going to save the planet. Jonathan Pershing, as John Kerry's former deputy in the White House, what's your reaction to that? Is loss and damage on the table? Should it be a topic of discussion? Well, we should be clear, it is on the table. Uh, I think the question, uh, the right question to me to ask is, how do we cope with it? And I think what, uh, what John Kerry was saying is one of the ways you cope with it is you think about putting into context. It is one of a set of things. If it is the exclusive thing about which we are having our conversation, I don't think we'll succeed. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't do anything. You're going to have to figure out some way to manage these damages to which you cannot avoid and which you can't uh, mitigate. So what do we do with some of those really kind of catastrophic circumstances? I've heard a couple of interesting ideas that are beginning to percolate in the system over the course of the last few months. 
So for example, one of the ideas that's there is as a country tries to recover from one of these massive catastrophic events, could you suspend its debt payments? Well, that's an interesting idea. Maybe you could. Here is a model which says you don't forgive them because ultimately you want the country to come back and be part of the dues-paying global society, and you can't borrow money and expect just to never have to pay it back. But is there a mechanism where you could suspend it for a year or two while they recover from a catastrophe? That's actually plausible. Could you imagine a model in which you look at recovery in a somewhat different way, not just the immediate post-disaster recovery, but are there insurance kinds of funds that could be scaled up, perhaps in part underwritten by government, perhaps underwritten in part by the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund, where those kinds of instruments and institutions could create some scaled capacity? We do this from time to time. We've done it in the debt crises that we've seen over the last several decades, where the IMF does step forward and help countries manage those debt issues. They're going to go into debt to recover from these crises again. Maybe this is an intersection that we could explore. It is going to be a discussion that will be contentious. It is tied up in so many issues of historic interest and concern that make it a fraught conversation at best. But we're going to have to start thinking creatively we're not yet there. I don't think we'll be there at the Sharm el-Sheikh meeting in Egypt either. So Jonathan, I have the privilege of talking to lots of different people from different perspectives. And yesterday I spoke to a woman from the global south, from American Samoa. And you know, if I were to anticipate how she would respond to that answer about the North saying, we will suspend your debt payments, Someone from the global south or Pakistan might say, what about the debt that's been inflicted on us, the costs of climate change that we didn't cause? And where is, you know, how is that measured? That's not on the balance sheet of the IMF and the multilateral institutions. People in the south have are suffering something. Where is that accounted for? Is there um, a moral obligation for us to recognize the cost that we have inflicted on the global south, my lifestyle, yours, everyone listening to this, our lifestyles have inflicted costs and damages on people, but it's not showing up on the balance sheets. So listen, I, I think that there's always two sides of every argument, and I think that's one of the sides of this argument. Uh, and one of the real issues around assistance is how to think through support for countries that had virtually no contribution to the problem and bear so much of the impact. Having said that, the other side is the political reality of the unwillingness of countries to make transfer payments. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not as if by saying we wish it were different that it becomes different. It doesn't mean that we excuse it. It means that we have to recognize the space in which we operate. And so what I've often tried to do is to find the practical places that you can make progress. I believe there is progress to be made on all three of these buckets. I believe there's progress on mitigation. We're beginning to see it. There's less on adaptation, but I think people are beginning to think that through. And there is now some interesting thinking on this suffering piece. And that suffering piece directly speaks to this moral question, as well as the practical realities of managing in the aftermath of what to be more frequent, more regular, and more severe consequences. In his opening remarks at the most recent UN General Assembly, Secretary General Guterres accused oil companies, quote, of feasting on hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies and windfall profits while household budgets shrink and our planets burn, end quote. He called for developed countries to tax the windfall profits of fossil fuel companies and redirect it to countries suffering loss and damage caused by burning their product. What do you think of that idea? I think it's got both an appeal and a set of problems. There are very clear indications from the economics community about much better ways to pass revenues around. If you really wanted to offset the cost for low-income communities, you wouldn't subsidize oil and gas. You'd subsidize renewables. You'd subsidize local access. And yet we don't because there are political power systems in place that preferentially treat certain kinds of outcomes. So I think we can wish this and we can push for this and we can fight through power of the streets and through our elected representatives and through pressure to try to shift some of the power dynamics. But we also need to be clear about what else we might do that would have a better chance of longer term successes. I think there are a few. 
I think we ought to be pushing back on these same companies to have regulation that requires them to decarbonize. There's an enormous amount of money in the decarbonization agenda. These companies, in some cases, are the right ones to move things around. I'm going to have to move hydrogen around. These companies can do that for me. I'm going to actually have to move carbon around and sequester it. These companies can do that for me. I'm going to need to think about renewable options at scale and supply chains that are global in nature. These companies can do that for me. So I think we want to think about opportunities. I think the sticks, while they're very attractive politically, have very seldom been implemented. And we might want to find some other models for more success. So yeah, encourage the positive rather than punish the negative. Uh, the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol was recently ratified by the U.S. Senate. This is huge on so many levels. Didn't get as much attention as I think it deserves. First, the international treaty phases out the production and use of hydrofluorocarbons or HFCs. These are chemical refrigerants and powerful greenhouse gases, so powerful that if Kigali Amendment were fully implemented, this would reduce global warming by half a degree Celsius. That's huge. It's also big news because it's the first time in 30 years the U.S. Senate has ratified an international climate treaty, and it was done in a bipartisan way with 21 Republican votes joining Democrats. So what does this tell you about the potential for more bipartisan multilateral action on climate? So I, I think it's fabulous. I think it's extraordinary. A few things about this. The first one is that the bill itself required domestic legislation. The domestic legislation was actually passed in 2020. It was passed under a Republican-controlled Senate. It was passed under a Republican president. We're now ratifying a treaty, which is, requires the domestic implementation, and that was ratified under a Democratic-controlled House with a Democratic uh, Senate and a Democratic president. What you've got is this fascinating model in which both parties have agreed you can do this. It's not the only one. The act itself was not just about Kigali in 2020. It included some of the precursors to the infrastructure bill. The infrastructure bill itself was passed with bipartisan agreement. And the Science and uh, Chips Act was passed with bipartisan agreement. So clearly, we're in a place where now you can move on a bipartisan basis going forward. The other piece which I would take note of is that a treaty has enormous standing. It is startling and quite disappointing that it's taken 30 years between the last climate agreement, which was in 1992, and this one in 2022. And yet, I think it does begin to show that the U.S. could be an active partner, a successful partner in a multilateral regime, a multilateral system. That gives me quite a lot of hope. How are you feeling right now about climate momentum, and what do you personally hope and expect will come out of COP27? So... I think that I look for the pragmatic answer. So to me, the question is not what would I love to do if the world were perfect, but what can I do in this world as we have it? And in that context, I am seeing progress. I think the tension is not just are we moving or not. The tension is are we moving fast enough? And the clear answer is no. We are not moving fast enough. If we had 50 years instead of 25 years, I'd be incredibly optimistic about the progress we're making. That 25 or 30 years of difference in time means we're going to probably face much greater risks than I would like to see. So the question for me now is where are all the steps that we could take to do that next thing that would move us in the right direction? How do I incentivize companies to make more investments in zero carbon options? How do I get people to make those choices? What am I doing for the farm community, not just in the US, but globally? How am I thinking about how I recover from damages that are likely to get more severe and continue to enable our economies to advance on a zero carbon trajectory instead of taking all of those resources and paying for the damages? Here's a very narrow case. Look at the consequences now in Europe because of the Russian invasion. One of the things that we're seeing is that development assistance that had been available to go outside of Europe is now turned to refugee crises and economic constraints inside of Europe. That's an immediate crisis in Europe that is going to slow down what might have been a rapid transition to zero carbon globally. And yet, with that, Europe is also using this war as part of its rationale for accelerating its transition, because in fact, security in energy supplies is lower if you're on a renewable trajectory than if you rely on gas from Russia. So here is how the complexity plays out. 
It's both good and bad. Let no crisis go to waste, right? No opportunity should be foregone, but deploy those moments, use those moments, accelerate wherever you can. Jonathan Pershing is former special envoy for climate change with the U.S. Department of State and now program director for environment at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. Jonathan, thank you for that fascinating walk around the world. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. COP27 is being framed as the implementation COP, where the stated goal is to move from negotiations and planning to action. Negotiations are notoriously slow because the COP follows a consensus model where every country has a voice and therefore essentially veto power. While Abumad is Egypt's ambassador to Brazil and the special representative of the COP27 president, he joined us from Cairo. I asked him if the shift in focus from negotiation to implementation means that the process will be even slower this year because implementation is hard. No, actually, I'll surprise you with some good news. The, the pace at which multilateral negotiations go forward is the slowest imaginable simply because you're seeking the lowest common denominator that will enjoy the support of 190 sovereign states with varying interests and understandably so. So we're not kidding ourselves. We are part of this and we know how it works. The action agenda, the implementation side, doesn't suffer from that ailment because you don't require every single entity or, or government to come on board. So when with the methane pledge, for example, which is an implementation tool, obviously, and other initiatives that we'll be launching. You're welcome to join. If you don't like it, don't come. But we'd like everyone to come on board. So you're not waiting for the 190 disparate views to come on board. You're willing to start with the few who are convinced that this is something they are willing to commit to. And you can use that and compare with a number of the initiatives that we're launching. We're launching something on agriculture something on water resource management. We have something dedicated to Africa. We have a very successful social security kind of program for industries and multiple people who are affected by climate change that we're scaling up. It's been implemented in Egypt, it's called Decent Life. And this is being scaled up for Africa and we're presenting it. There's a waste management initiative. Waste management is of course an environmental issue, but it also has emissions. Uh, sides to it. So, uh, and that's for Africa as well. So there are a number of initiatives. These are all action-oriented. That's why we call it the action agenda. And that is the definition or more the implementation of the implementation uh, narrative that we're talking about. And that action costs money, and yet investment tends to go to countries that need it least because they're perceived to be less risky. So what could be done to encourage private capital flows to be directed to fuel that implementation you're talking about? You're spot on, on the finance side. But in tailoring all of our action agenda aspects, we did nothing alone. We held workshops and seminars in Cairo, in our building here for the MDBs, for private sector, and for governments from around the world. We had two or three rounds of these talks and we tweaked and fine-tuned some of the uh, narratives that we were creating to ensure the broadest buy-in by as many partners from outside governments. Of course, you have the beneficiary governments, but you want the development partners in the developed world to come on board. You want the MDBs to be there and you want private business to come in. But to your point, there is a problem with global climate finance. And the reality that you just pointed to is fully accurate in private business is defined by seeking profit. So there are opportunities and the overwhelming percentage of private business goes to be invested A, in developed countries and B, in mitigation efforts, which is fine, that is good. We, we need to reduce emissions. But what is the flip side of that is that adaptation is completely starved of private investment. And this threshold or yardstick of bankable projects that everyone is preaching to the world just doesn't apply to adaptation or very, you need to stretch your definition of adaptation to find a project in protecting Egypt's delta from the rise of sea level where there is a profitable project. So we need to find a formula that ensures that whatever non-profit-driven monies are focused more on the adaptation side. I had this conversation, was it in a couple of weeks ago, 
with philanthropies. The world's largest philanthropies were there. And I told them, you guys are not there in it for profit. You're benevolent, you are noble, you want to make a difference. Yet, A, and these are figures from the U.S. in particular, about 2% of all U.S. giving is going to climate. Okay, that's number one. Number two, whatever money is going to climate is going to climate in the U.S., in the country of source. Three, it's not going to adaptation. I, I looked at charts that are identical to those of the private sector. And I thought, you know, you guys should be the flip side of the private sector. You should be going to where the need is most and no one else is going and say, I'm making a difference. But if your philanthropy money goes to where the private money goes, it's a drop in an ocean because you're, you're a fraction of a fraction of what is being uh, available, be becoming available from the private sector. So why not increase the impact by going where you guys, they could unlock technologies. We didn't mention technology. Finance is important. But to, to move to renewables or to adapt, technology is key. And you mentioned it with the price, when the price dipped of renewables, that's when Egypt started building our one of the world's largest solar farms. If the prices had not dipped, we wouldn't have been able to have set those targets. So philanthropy is private money. That's part of the finance. While Abumad is the special representative of the COP27 president, find our full interview with him on our podcast feed. Climate One will be on the ground in Sharm El Sheikh. Subscribe to our podcast to catch all our episodes from the Climate Conference. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be hard, sometimes exciting, sometimes depressing. And it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating review if you're listening on Apple. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Our team also includes consulting producer Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>